make him laugh, make him laugh Bet you all tired of hearing the constant blather In the end, you just wanna know that laughing matters From entrepreneurs to Fortune 500 Humor makes the world go round You didn't know? It's a fit for a pro Like a roll with spaghetti To keep your culture light when times are heavy So sit back and relax as you raise the bar When it all comes down to the ha 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 Yeah, make him laugh, make him laugh, huh? You make him laugh, make him laugh Welcome to Laughing Matters, a podcast like no other you'll hear, and the world is is very pleased about that. There's only room for one Laughing Matters, and there shouldn't be another one. Um, anyway, on Laughing Matters, we explore the power of humor and laughter in a world sorely lacking both, and how leaders from all walks of life use humor to take the edge off. I'm your co-host, Steve Cody, CEO of Peppercom, and I'm joined, as always, by senior vice president and the the royal family member of Raleigh, Paul Mershon. Paul, welcome. Thank you so much, Steve, for that wonderful and kind welcome. And I'm certainly happy to continue to address me with uh, royalty titles. So keep that going. Let's uh, let, let's keep adding that to the mix, right? Absolutely. And, and please pass along my best to Harry and Megan when you see them. Yeah, we're so, close. Not a problem. Yeah. I know. And I know you'll be attending the coronation coming up. So... Um, in any event, it is a distinct honor to have with us today an award-winning expert voice in the academic world on the study, promotion, and celebration of the African-American experience. He's a visiting associate professor of African-American studies at Loyola Marymount University in L.A., with research centering on the politics of African-American comedy from the civil rights movement to the present. His recent book, Freedom in Laughter, published by SUNY Press, has been credited with highlighting the connection between artistic expression and activism as a mutual exchange in the process of continuing to enlighten, inspire, and transform a painfully divided society. And last, and probably least, he is uh, one of our newest Laughing Matters Advisory Council members. Please welcome from La La Land, Dr. Malcolm Frierson. Malcolm, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Steve, Paul, as well. I appreciate this invitation to join the podcast. I'm excited. As are we. And it's, a thrill to be, it's a thrill to be discussing such an important subject with him, with you. So just to kick it off, Malcolm, I, I wanted to ask about the amazing book you wrote, Freedom in Laughter, in which you talk about the legendary black comedian Dick Gregory, who I remember very well watching on TV growing up who was known in part for transforming himself in the 60s and I guess early 70s as well, to become a leader in advancing socio-political issues in the black community. But he made this transformation while still taking the comedy world by storm with both black and white audiences. Can you share with our listeners why you featured him in your book and what lessons you can share about how Dick Gregory made this pivot in his career? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Good question, too. So as a graduate student researching the civil rights movement, I was introduced to some brilliant academic studies out there that look at the convergence of art and politics. There's writing I was introduced to that looked at the amazing influence of Motown and carrying the political messages of the movement. There are studies that do the same in sports history, looking at figures like Muhammad Ali, uh, Jim Brown, and so on, and the way they carried the movement, even fashion. And so I was interested in the role of comedians. And when I looked to do that research, 
uh, I found that there were too few studies out there. And that's the moment that I decided that this is going to be my contribution. And starting with that, using humor, using the comedy stage as a platform for protest, I think you have to begin with Dick Gregory. He's the first to do it successfully and make it um, in mainstream with the political satire that he used that made him a sensation in America and across the world as a human rights activist. So uh, I, I like the way that Dick Gregory led from where he was. That's one of the big lessons that we can take from this. This is something that hadn't been done before, but he didn't let that deter him from carving out a path to leadership in the civil rights movement as a comedian. Um, I think another lesson that we could learn here is uh, the way that Dick Gregory, his, his, his comedy grew into a political message, into a political platform that established him as a human rights activist. There are some by the early 1970s who didn't recognize Dick Gregory as a comedian because they looked at him as this amazing, this, this amazing, passionate activist. And so I like also continuing his legacy. Dick Gregory passed away in 2017. Um, the, the, the work that he did got him blackballed across so many places in the industry. Um, he had a brief resurgence, uh, tried to come back as a comedian, uh, but didn't enjoy the success that I think his talent deserved. And historically, as an academic, I don't think he gets the credit that his activism deserves. Whenever I walk into a classroom with a group of 30 or 40 students and I ask them who knows who Dick Gregory is, there might be one hand that goes up, but keeping his legacy alive is important to me. Um, and I think it's so inspirational for students as well. So everybody under yeah, 40 needs to read that book. Well, I was, I was going to say, Malcolm, what we have to do, and I don't know if you want to select it, but we'll go to YouTube and we'll get, you know, a clip of Dick Gregory for all of those under the age of 40 who are not familiar with the genius that he was. I don't know if you have a particular clip that you'd like to send us or if you'd like us to just select one, but I'd really like to illustrate your point with a clip from Dick Gregory. Great. I can think of so many. I had so much fun doing this research. I was able to pull those comedy albums, get a glass of wine, go into a, an office and just tell my wife, hey, I'm working. Leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> the best kind of work. We're having fun. You know, what's interesting, too, about about Dick Gregory is that you know, he was so ahead of his time. Right. I mean, we see so many people who are in the public eye nowadays who as soon as they start making any sort of political comment, immediately there's there's this resistance right immediately people come and say well you're not allowed to do it you can't talk about that stick to what you know stick to sports stick to singing stick to music right uh, but he kind of uh, pioneered all of that right and, and obviously there's deep subject matter with all these types of discussions and you teach this in your college lessons and you, you teach topics just like like the Harlem Renaissance and pan-Africanism I wanted to ask you you know, you know how some people may feel like having these discussions uh, should be devoid of humor uh, because honestly, because of our history in the United States, some of this stuff just isn't funny. So how do you bring in humor to these sensitive subjects with your students? Right. Yeah, I couldn't disagree with those who think these topics need to be devoid of humor more. Quite the contrary, I advance humor in the classroom in discussing some of these really sensitive historical political topics. Not only in my Harlem Renaissance class, the Civil Rights Movement course, I get to play some clips of Dick Gregory and other comedians in that class. But I took a huge chance this semester. I'm doing a race and contemporary society course. And I thought I'm going to look at this from the lens of stand up comedy. So instead of the traditional 
lecture style, we'll have discussion-based uh, interactions that come after we look at some comedy specials that connect art in the larger political landscape. So of course, we began with Dick Gregory, we've looked at Richard Pryor, uh, we go across the spectrum. We even look at Margaret Cho and how she discusses anti-Asian hate in her work. And the students have responded overwhelmingly positive. They absolutely love this class. We're at the point of student evaluations now. And I just asked them, should I teach this class this way again? And they all emphatically said, absolutely, you must. I would love to take this class again. It's my favorite class. And so that kind of response is so encouraging that it lets me know I'm on the right track. And we have a very diverse group of students there, um, black, white, biracial, Asian. And we were all able to come together and have really productive conversations, exchanges, because I think the way that humor diffused a lot of the differences that existed prior to them coming to class on that first day. Uh, I'd like to audit that class when you next teach it, Malcolm. Seriously, I really you're, would. You are more than welcome. Your input would be so uh, beneficial to the students. Well, I'd love to do that. So I wanted to get to uh, to corporate America and diversity training. And obviously, you know, post-March 2020, post-Black Lives Matters, George Floyd, you know, everybody started hiring DEI leaders. They started, you know, including DEI as part of their uh, employee resource group training, et cetera. But uh, in the recent, I would say, six to 12 months, there have been some organizations, as you know, that have either eliminated or defunded DEI and or when they did their downsizings, downsized their DEI executive. Um, so moving forward, I mean, A, what would you say to those organizations, I don't want to put words in your mouth, that were so short-sighted in, in, in defunding DEI or eliminating the DEI officer completely? And how do we change that mindset? Yeah, another good question. It comes down to failed promises. And we saw a plethora of organizations inserting themselves as allies following the events of 2020, the murder of George Floyd and so on. And it's so discouraging, so, so disappointing to now see those organizations having done little more than paid lip service to um, injustice and correcting those injustices. And so I would remind those companies strongly to uh, think that their employees are watching, their customer bases are watching. I mean, quite literally, the world is watching. And for companies to think that they can remain stagnant in this atmosphere, I think is a dangerous play. And I think that is putting the success of the organization at risk. Um, you know, at, at worst, you're looking at morale falling within the company, distrust being built up within the company, employees not seeing themselves as valued and heard because we were all so moved with the events of 2020. And we really thought, okay, this is the time that these organizations are going to come together and make the changes that so many people have been pushing for for a long time. We really thought, okay, they get it now. Diversity, equity, inclusion is going to be a real part of the corporate world. And sadly, across industries, we're seeing that disappointment slowly build back up because those organizations aren't making good on those promises. 
just to follow up, uh, Malcolm, you, you touched on on obviously Dick Gregory, Richard Pryor, um, some of the great comedians. I think Carlin is somebody who also transcended mm. funny, did you, you know, introduce political subjects. Um, among the current crop of comedians, um, who do you admire most in terms of bringing up, uh, whether it's uh, the LGBT community, whether it's inclusiveness, whether it's uh, being a person of color, Asian, you know, Native American, et cetera, who, who's doing it right in terms of, and I assume it's a balance that one needs to strike in terms of bringing up these incredibly sensitive subjects, but, you know, doing it in a way that engages the audience and elicits a laughter. Right. There are several comedians doing that work. I think Jamar, Gerard Carmichael had a brilliant set, a monologue on SNL that a lot of the nation tuned into or watched on YouTube later uh, because of the messages that were in that piece. Going back to the 1990s, I don't think anybody could touch Chris Rock at his height. Yeah. Uh, Chris Rock did just an amazing job of talking about societal issues and talking about issues within the black community. Uh, Dave Chappelle is another one uh, whose work has just been absolutely brilliant, although he's been highly controversial as of late. Uh, Janelle James, the breakout star on Abbott Elementary, who's featured on the current issue of Vanity Fair magazine, mm -hmm. actually came out and said that she thinks uh, Chappelle is a little bit too in his wisdom bag now and that he's being less funny than he is political and he's forgetting the role of the comedian, which is to entertain while slipping in some education, but he's doing a little bit too much of uh, the pontificating on stage right now. Uh, other works out there, Eddie Murphy's uh, recent film, uh, You People, gets into some of the differences between families um, and, and by the end teaches us the great lesson that let's focus on what brings us together more than what divides us. So there are a lot of comedians still doing that work, still carrying the torch of Dick Gregory, who I look at as the Jackie Robinson of stand-up comedy. Richard Pryor said, without Gregory, you know, there would be no Richard Pryor. Somebody had to break down that wall. What, one final question before Paul comes in, uh, because I love this subject, obviously. Um, and what you said about um, the comment about um, Chappelle maybe becoming, injecting too much of his political thinking in, and not remembering the laughter, that's pretty much what happened to Lenny Bruce, right? Lenny Bruce just went so off the rails in terms of becoming so focused on what he saw as the the injustices of society in the 60s, that he lost his complete audience. Do you think Chappelle runs that risk? I think Chappelle is so cemented in, in entertainment that despite some of the recent controversy that he's been involved in, his fan base is so huge that they're going to remain loyal to him. And Chappelle, because of you know the beauty of video, he still has new followers every year People right. who just discover his uh, Comedy Central show, uh, Chappelle show, um, and, and they are introduced to him and follow him as if he just came on the scene. So I don't think he's running the risk of damaging his brand, um, but there are some who don't like the way his comedy is going. Yeah. Now, I also want to say that I appreciate bringing up uh, Janelle James and Abel Elementary because she has me dying on that show every time I watch it. So, uh, Doesn't great, she great play that character there. brilliantly? She's amazing. She's amazing. Every time she comes on, I'm like, all right, this is where I'm going to start laughing real hard. Um, but I also wanted to ask you, Malcolm, about uh, music. Uh, you mentioned that uh, you love music, and uh, music has had such a, a formative impact 
on African-American culture and vice versa. Um, and it's a perfect outlet to demonstrate humor with creativity. Uh, so we'd love to hear from you on some of your favorite artists growing up and how they helped to shape your sense of humor. Okay. Uh, let me start off by saying I'm a 70s baby. So <laughs> sneaking up, uh, sneaking into the room late at night, hearing my mom listening to Marvin Gaye and uh, Diana Ross, and, and that music was uh, a part of my early development. Um, I still have such an affinity for that 70s soul music. Uh, Marvin Gaye's 1971 What's Going On album is just amazing. You can listen to it from start to finish. You know, he wrote that album from a perspective of a Vietnam War veteran returning to the United States and becoming disillusioned with society. He even gets into environmentalism on that album. So it's a classic for a reason. It was so ahead of its time. Uh, 80s Whitney Houston, listening to those albums was fun. Uh, moving into the 90s as I got into my teens, uh, Digital Underground, um, Rex and Effects, Teddy Riley, just some really good music that came out of that era. I think my first concert was LL Cool J and uh, uh, Run DMC. But there's so much more humor in hip hop than I think has been recognized. Not only the obvious humor like Will Smith and parents just don't understand and, and the other music that he did. But I'm um, thinking back to Digital Underground before this show, my hype music was the Humpty Dance. <laughs> how, how fun was that music of that period? Today, you know, in my old age, I'm more a soft jazz guy now, R&B guy. Uh, but yeah, I still just love music. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm into jazz as well. I wanted to talk a little bit about what clearly will be um, your legacy, I believe, and that's the Malcolm Frierson Foundation that you founded 20 years ago to promote the success of African-American youth. Um, why is humor such an important tool in developing our youth, particularly in the African-American community, Malcolm? And what, what prompted you to start this foundation? Yeah, so at about 2006, I realized that my career was not going to take me back home to West Jackson, Mississippi. Yet, I wanted to have a positive impact on the kids that were growing up in that neighborhood who walked the same streets that I did, who went to, went to the same schools that I went to and experienced the same struggles that I did. I wanted to motivate them, to empower them, to let them know that success is within your grasp. And so I founded this organization as a scholarship organization to reward highly deserving, talented, high school seniors with some money to help them get to the next level. Um, it's continued, it, it, it has been effective. We've sent students from uh, local schools like Jackson State University all the way to NYU out there, uh, some California schools. So it's, it's, it's amazing the impact that we can have. This is the type of lesson that Dick Gregory taught us, lead from where you are. And I'm not a, Bill Gates, my name isn't on a building anywhere, but I wanted them to see that a local guy can start this foundation and put some good in the world through you, and I want you to grow up and do the same thing. Now, in interacting with those students, um, you know, once you cross a certain age, professionalism, you become not cool anymore. <laughs> but the way I, I keep my cool with the students and the way that I make our interactions seem less like a lecture is through the use of humor. We can connect around 
some jokes, uh, jokes that are neighborhood jokes or just national jokes. And so I found that humor is an effective tool of communication with those students. It can bridge the age gap, you know, it can bridge the racial gap. There's so many gaps that can be uh, closed when we operate using humor as a tool of, of social mediation. That's great. I, I became not cool when William McKinley was in the White House. <laughs> Steve, you you gotta you come come back to the under forties, all right? So that we don't lose the crowd here, all right? <laughs> Nobody knows who that is. <laughs> Study your American politics. Ah, Michael, uh, this has been wonderful. I, I had a couple of final questions for you. Um, you know, first, I, I did want to just ask: um, Do you feel that sense of uh, that sense of responsibility, having come out as you mentioned, you know, uh, from the, from some of those same neighborhoods that some of these kids that you're trying to you know help out in Jackson, Mississippi, mm -hmm. and other parts, right? Um, having, you know, been had such a successful career and a PhD, I mean, do you feel that sense of responsibility uh, to, to have that uh, that impact on their lives? I mean, how, how do you approach that and, and, and use that to, to help out with, with the community? Yeah, I do. I feel that sense of impact. And I think it stems from not only my upbringing, my dad was into local politics and encouraged us to do well, to help out people when you can. But the material that I study set the example as well. So many of the civil rights activists gave of themselves selflessly to the movement. When we look at the generational wealth that Dick Gregory gave up, um, it's, it's, it's humbling. Um, and so many others who contributed to the movement um, in ways that you know are unfathomable to a lot of young people today, uh, but they made that decision. And I enjoy the work that I do. It is fun. It is so rewarding. I know that not everyone can put themselves in a position to do this same type of work, but I enjoy being one of those who is invested in our youth and, and it, it's really impactful. So I, I appreciate the opportunity to work with young people the way that I've been able to do. And the work has grown. That small organization, uh, that small foundation with the small mission of providing scholarships to students at my old high school, Jim Hill in West Jackson, Mississippi, has now grown into a national scholarship program. We get applications wow. from students across the United States. That's wonderful. And obviously you've had such a tremendous impact already, Malcolm, and we definitely commend you for that. And uh, final question I wanted to ask you, we asked this to all of our guests, if you could define an embarrassing moment in your career or, or personal life, and that you could think back right now and, and laugh about it, but before it just you know, made you cringe. How much time do you have? Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I remember being in a job interview once, and I think I took the humor approach a little bit too far. I wanted to tell the story about my mom, who's not tech savvy, believing that everything she heard about getting over the computer, you just use your computer to get it. You want to get, I don't know, a wrench, order it over the computer. You can get it over the computer. And so when I explained to those in the interview room that my mom believed you could order a sweater and it would come over the computer, as in literally coming through the computer screen. Uh. <laughs> it absolutely bombed. There was not a smile in the room. And I said, okay, we'll use that one again. <laughs> but I did, I was offered the position. Okay. So maybe it didn't do as bad as I thought. There you go. Uh, it worked. I, I, am yeah. used, I am used, Malcolm, to that type of response to anything I say on stage. So... So I can relate. I um, I wanted to um, to thank you on on behalf of Paul, uh, myself, all the people who will listen to this. And you've got thirty thousand uh, titles, but just to sum up again, 
it's been a real privilege to have Malcolm Frierson, who is visiting associate professor of American studies at Loyola Marymount University. His research centers on the politics of African-American comedy from the civil rights movement to the present. And his recent book, Freedom and Laughter, was published by SUNY Press and has been credited with highlighting the connection between artistic expression and activism as a mutual exchange in the process of continuing to enlighten, inspire, and transform a painfully divided society. You enlightened, inspired, Paul and me, but I don't think you'll ever transform either one of us. We're just not funny guys, Malcolm. Yeah. Listen, thanks, Steve. Thanks, Paul, for having me. This has been a fun ride. Let's do it again. We will. And I'm going to audit that class, Malcolm. You're welcome. <laughs> All righty. Thank you so much. Until you, next time. See you later. All righty.